Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked, or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. May God add understanding to his word. I uh, had a few tears even preparing this message, so I'm going to do my best not to make a fool of myself this morning. As maybe you've gathered from the lighting of the candle, we've been given a nod to the church calendar tradition of Advent, which is from the Latin Adventus, itself a a translation of Perusia from the Greek New Testament. It means arrival or coming, but most often in Scripture it refers to the future victorious return of Jesus Christ in his glory. And so Advent then is a time of remembering and preparing for his arrival, making sure that we are ready for his return and final judgment of all people. On this, the final Sunday of Advent, I have chosen a related subject for my annual topical message. What will Christ's church look like when he returns? The revelation of Jesus Christ describes the church figuratively as a bride, Revelation 19, 7 to 8, made ready and adorned for her husband, clothed in fine white linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so as we explore this together, and as I attempt to stir you to greater love and good works, I want to point you to the gospel message right off the bat. For the good news of Advent is not only that Christ is going to return in his glory, but that his bride, the church, will be ready. For God himself has undertaken the task of preparing her. One of my favorite passages of scripture has become the Jude doxology. 
Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to our only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He is able to present us blameless before his presence. He comes back for his pure and spotless bride, dressed in righteous deeds. And so keep this good news in mind as we explore the righteous deeds which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not only has God commanded these things, but he has enabled his people to will and to obey And he has also promised to bring these things about. Such was the confidence of the apostle, Philippians 1, 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the topic this morning is not only about the things the church should do, but those things that the true church will be found doing both because they desire to do them and because their Lord has commanded it and his arrival is imminent. And so I've titled the message this morning, I do one title a year, The Church as Christ Will Find Her. A topical message can be a good opportunity for corporate pastoral care, but it is important to recognize that I won't be giving a full exposition of the passages we're looking at, but only in the context of our topic. And it's also important as we tackle a topic to recognize that I will not be able to exhaustively handle any subject with the time we have together this morning. I will recommend to you the Advent devotional series on our church website for a fuller exploration of the implications of Advent. Andrew has done an excellent job communicating there. And and while you have extra time this season for leisure activities, I encourage you to read and meditate on how you want to prepare for the return of our Lord and Master. For this morning, I have limited myself to present quite unevenly four characteristics which will describe and define the true church of Christ Jesus when he appears at the appropriate time. Uh, The first and second, but the first is from Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which we often refer to as the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so my first point, and and they're all short points except for one. You'll see how uneven this sermon is. The church, as Christ finds her, will be a testifying people. What I mean is that when Jesus returns, he will find his church faithfully testifying. In the Revelation, the great and wonderful promises to God's people are continually given to the one who conquers. 
which is very tightly tied to being a faithful witness who bears the testimony of Jesus and the word of God. And so being a faithful witness doesn't mean that all Christians should carry around a soapbox so that we can yell at people. Not everyone is called to be a street preacher. It means that we are always ready to bear witness to what Christ has done in our lives. We are commanded, 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. If the people around us are not noticing that we are very different and are the bearers of a wonderful hope, it may be because we need to grow in the other areas which are to define the church. The second of which we also see in the Great Commission, as well as the passage we just read in Peter, these both contain it. The second point is the church as Christ finds her will be a sanctified people. Making disciples includes Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Bearing faithful witness with gentleness and respect, 1 Peter 3.16, must also include having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Not only will you lack opportunity to bear faithful witness if people do not see the life change that comes with genuinely embracing the gospel, But this behavior also adorns the gospel in that Christ will be glorified through us and 1 Timothy 6.1 so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. You see, if we bear the witness of the gospel, if we share the good news and then it hasn't impacted us at all, it hasn't changed our lives, uh, people will say that our God and his teaching are, are worthless. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 8 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, and that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Catch the explicit threat here. God himself is the avenger in these things. If we wrong our brother or sister in sexual immorality... The church as Christ finds her will not be an impure or sexually immoral community. Many today want to call themselves believers or Christians, but with little or no regard for the commands of Christ. And Christianity is not about rules or religion, it's about a relationship, right? They might say. This, of course, is nonsense. 
for Christianity is true religion in the face of all others. A religion predicated on a relationship with a Lord and a master who commands us and who commissions us to teach one another his commands. There is no relationship with Jesus outside of this obedience, outside of the practice of true religion. Anyone who claims such is a liar. 1 John 1.6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. James writes to tell us what true religion entails. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Care for widows and orphans is an often repeated command in the Old Testament, and it introduces the next point, though it will need much more significant explanation. The third point, and one I'm quite passionate about this morning, is the church as Christ finds her will be a feasting people. Like I said, it's going to take some explanation. God's covenant people has always been a feasting people but in a way that is very distinct from the world. In fact, feasting is a sacred act of commanded worship which has been corrupted by sin and is commonly practiced by the world only in this debased form. There are over a hundred commands regarding feasts in the Old Testament, each an act of joyful worship and thanksgiving to God for what he had done and what he had promised to his people. Some of the feasts were a week long. Some of them were for just one meal. Some of them had specific rules to follow for what was eaten and how it was cooked to draw attention to various aspects of Israel's history or promises. But what all the feasts had in common was the repeated command that it was to be shared equally with the community. That is that the wealthy did not eat finer fare and then provide something else for their slaves and the poor. The wealthy didn't didn't feast on on meat and delicacies and then provide a, a soup kitchen because they were caring for others. They shared it equally. And the command is also included in all these feasts that they must include all of the orphans, widows, slaves, immigrants, and Levites who had no income from within their town. Deuteronomy 16, 14 says, You shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. During the wilderness wanderings of Israel, it was forbidden to kill any of their livestock for food except for sacrifices and feasts. It's an interesting law. They're told that the life of an animal during this period of time was to be considered as the life of a man. So if they killed an animal to eat it, they would be guilty of murder. They only would save all the animals. Can you imagine this people coming through with their their herds, their flocks, and then they're complaining about starving? It always blew my mind. Why, why, Why don't they just eat their sheep? They keep on having sheep later on in the story. Why are they so hungry? It was forbidden. They could only sacrifice them. For the remainder of Israel's history, scholars tell us that all but the very rich would hardly eat meat 
at all except for at a sacred feast. Almost every sacrifice was also an opportunity for a smaller feast where a a smaller community would come and eat the animal once it had been offered on the fire. And once the Israelites had a land of their own, every animal sacrifice also had to include a proportional amount of fine flour seasoned with salt, olive oil, and and anywhere from one to two liters of wine depending on the size of the animal. The best of all of this, Numbers 18.12, was given to the priests whose families were fed by the portion they received as their due for their service. But the remainder was enjoyed as a feast before God, a communal meal with him. And sometimes when we think of the sacrificial system, we think the animal slaughtered and then thrown on a fire and burnt up and, you know, God consumes it or something like that. But the reality is God doesn't eat. He doesn't need their sacrifice. So they would offer it to God and parts would be burned, but not the meat. That would be eaten by the priests and then by the people themselves. Now, the sacrificial system was ended and fulfilled by the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. But I I want us to see this morning the trajectory of this throughout the history of God's people. A, A history of being a people who feast. Another example of feasting in the Old Testament is the tithe. Now, we intentionally don't use this word very often around here because most Christians today have been taught such backward things that the tithe is a word mostly misunderstood. But, but tithing is another excellent example of feasting with the community. To the ancient audience, a tithe, or tenth, was the tribute which one gathered throughout the year in order to pay protection money to the local warlord. You see, the the feudal system was ultimately a big extortion racket, but, but essentially nearly every city and town paid tribute or a tithe to whoever they didn't want to be pillaged by and, and who was supposed to give them protection in return. So whoever the local warlord was would once a year go through the cities that were under his protection and they would collect the the tribute, the tithe. Now, the Old Testament law of Moses was written with many similarities with these vassal warlord agreements, which were common in the ancient Near East. We have these today. Some of them are written on stone between Hittite warlords and and their vassals. Um, But with God as the powerful party, the warlord or the suzerain, as they were called, and with Israel as the ones who would submit to his rule or the vassal, uh, who would, would pay tribute, but with sometimes massive distinctions. One such distinction is in the giving of the tithe. Israel's uh, treaty with God, their covenant with God, was that they would still gather their tribute, but instead of giving it to the warlord, because he doesn't need their stuff and he doesn't eat, they were to bring it before God at his temple, and they there would feast in thanksgiving for everything that he had blessed them with. Let me read you this, Deuteronomy 14, to 29. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field each, 
or feel year by year, and before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. And at the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Once again, this was to include the whole household, children and slaves alike. And again, the Levites were to be included because they had no income. And every third year, the whole of the tribute was given to the widow, orphan, immigrant, and landless on God's behalf. This is an important distinction. No one gives anything to God. We worship God by rightly enjoying what he has provided and sharing it equally with the community. It is given to the community on God's behalf. Now, I, I recognize that I've been nerding out here a little bit, but I, what I want you to see is that the best of the produce, the first fruits and the firstborn of the flock, meat, wine, and strong drink, were not eaten in rich homes, but were shared equally with the community as a sacred act of worship before God, as a way of giving him the honor and thanksgiving that he deserves, while also making sure that the poor and those who were usually relegated to the margins of society were able to enjoy and give thanks for all the same good gifts from God, the best of the delicacies and fine drink Israel had to offer. You know, today we might feast and then provide some money for a soup kitchen. In Israel, they took the best, the first, the tribute, and this they shared. Two of every three years, they shared it with everyone. The third year, they gave it away. So how does this relate to us in the New Testament covenant? And perhaps you're also asking how this relates to Advent. Well, when Jesus taught about his victorious return in glory to judge all people, we might be surprised at the criteria for judgment which he singles out. We began uh, with Marshall reading Matthew 25, 31 to 46. I'm going to skip through it a little bit for the sake of time. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And there's two kinds of people, right? What is the distinction? I was hungry and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then verse 40, the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And the same is looked at in those who are on his left, to which he says, verse 41, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Have you considered this criteria for final judgment? Will Christ return to find that we have cared for his brothers and sisters? Have we fed the hungry, clothed the naked, welcomed the stranger, visited the shut-in, and provided for the one who has been persecuted and imprisoned? I said to you earlier that no one can give anything to God. And I stand by that statement. He does not need our stuff. But look now at the words of Jesus. Verse 40. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. You see what I'm saying? We can't give anything to God. Not really. What, what could he need? What could he make use of that we could give to him? But what we do to the least of his disciples, the least of his brothers and sisters, we do it to Jesus. Proverbs 19.17 says that whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. A church that wishes to be generous with God is generous with his servants. Jesus tells another parable, Matthew 24, 45-51, which teaches about judgment of his servants at his advent. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whose master has set over his, who, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food in the proper time? Blessed is that servant who his master will find doing, so doing when he comes. Truly I say to him, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this, this passage isn't just about food. The faithful and wise servant has been given the responsibility to give the other servants their food at the proper time. But this could include any material needs as well as discipleship and teaching the commands of Christ. The word of God is often spoken of figuratively as food. But the contrasting wicked servant, emboldened by what he considers to be the master's delay, begins to eat and drink with the drunkards. Now, today we might just read this and consider this generally bad behavior, but that would miss the point. 
When we think of drunkards, we think of alcohol abuse. But from this biblical mindset, this is considered gluttony. Consider that the, the wicked servant eats and drinks with drunkards. It's, it's not just that he's, he's over drinking, but he's taking what should have been his fellow servant's food, taking what the master has provided, and is indulging privately with his like-minded companions of, of what was meant to be shared amongst all the other servants. And so it's not just, well, he had bad behavior, so God came back. But his behavior is that he's taking what God has provided, which is to be shared with his fellow servants, and he's overeating, overdrinking with his friends. When the master returns on a day which he does not expect him and an hour he does not know, he will execute his judgment on the servant that abuses his fellow servants and enjoys for himself what was meant to be shared among them. He will cut him in pieces and place him with the hypocrites where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is to say hell. As with those who thought that they would be recognized by Christ at the judgment and yet failed to provide for the needs of the saints, and that such faithless servants will be sent away into eternal punishment. Now for the early church which was predominantly impoverished, feasting required fasting. One of the common practices in the early centuries was to fast two days a week in order to have something to share with others, especially on Sunday for the regularly shared feast. Now, for people who were in large part slaves and laborers, fasting in that context usually didn't mean going without food completely but saving up the money and provisions that they would usually spend and eating inexpensive items such as day-old bread. They were frugal so that they could feast. The greater the feast, the longer the periods of fasting were for the early church, so that traditions like Lent and Advent were weeks of frugality in preparation for the feasts of the church. One thing that I found striking, though, in my studies was that even if they were in the midst of a long fast, the thought of fasting on Sunday was unthinkable. For who would miss the love feast, which was commanded by Christ and his apostles? And where they would recognize the body of Christ, his church, by sharing their food and wine in his name. I'm reminded of the testimony of John Wesley, who, when the church could no longer afford to provide tea with their community meals, there just wasn't enough money to feed everyone and give them tea, he would no longer have tea in his own home. Quite a sacrifice for an Englishman. I want to boast in the work of God in my parents for a moment, and I rarely can do this without crying. And if you've known me for more than a couple of years, you've heard this story. But growing up, my parents, there were so many people in the church that, that had no one, no one caring for them, no one practicing hospitality. We were in a church that really didn't practice hospitality in any meaningful way, but my parents practiced hospitality. This is the work of God in them. And they didn't have much. We didn't have much. They had four kids, and they would invite all these people into our home after a service on a, a Sunday morning or a Sunday night, and, and we would share simple fare because that's what we had. I remember mom making popcorn and cinnamon toast. And, and if dad was doing particularly well, there might be slices of cheese. And, and I, re I remember distinctly them going through the couch for change 
so that they could buy a two liter of Coke, which then mom would then dole out tiny little glasses to everybody so that it would go around. This is the feasting of the church. Sharing what we have, frugality so that we can be generous, sharing equally among all, We had ugly, stinky people in our house all the time. In fact, sometimes it was probably inappropriate. We had the weirdest people sometimes living with us. I remember one creepy man with long, greasy hair went into my sister's bathroom to steal their hairbrush. And he used it and then put it back. And they gave it to him as a nice gift afterwards. But this is the love of Christ. We just need to make sure it's his people next time. The church as Christ finds her will be a faithful and wise church caring for the people of God as they would for Christ himself if it were possible for him to be in need. The church as Christ finds her will be a fasting and feasting people privately frugal so that they can be publicly generous. The church, as Christ finds her, will share the best of their food and drink so that the whole congregation has reason for rejoicing in the goodness of God and so that they may give him honor and thanks, which is his due. Sorry, I'm trying to keep it together. I'm so thankful to the families who have been sacrificing their time and substance to provide meals each Sunday. I know that this is a burden you carry, but this is a sacred act of worship which honors God by caring for his people. And and I want to encourage us, church, that we all be involved in this ministry to the saints, to treat one another as we would Christ in our midst. If Jesus was coming today for lunch, what would we do? Share your best. You will enjoy it far more than you would otherwise. Be the means by which thanks is given to God. And remember those whom God has entrusted to your care, all of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with a private party with family and friends. Don't go and cancel your Christmas plans now. But we dare not, church, we dare not exhaust our means and our relational capacity on intimate engagements with close friends when we have a sacred call to worship through holy feasting. Let me say that again. We dare not exhaust our means and our relational capacity on intimate engagements with close friends when we have a sacred call to worship through holy feasting in a biblical way. Luke 14, 12 to 14, Jesus said, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." The early apostolic church was known for feeding all of their poor with the best of their provisions. Do you see how different this is from the charities we see? 
Because these were their brothers and sisters. These weren't strangers to which they had no responsibility. This was the family in a very real sense, a sense more real than blood. They feasted their family on the best of their provisions, even feeding pagans who would come to visit. But their, their responsibility is explicitly to our fellow believers who we are to treat as though they are representing the presence of Christ Jesus, which in fact they are. Jesus said of his disciples, Matthew 10, 40 to 42, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is my disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The motivation, church, for our feasting is the worship of Christ. In providing for even the least of his disciples, we are honoring him. If our motivation is to provide even something as simple as a cup of cold water to refresh and to honor our spiritual siblings, we honor Christ. The, the final point this morning may be redundant after everything I've just said. But the church, as Christ finds her, will be a rejoicing people. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Earlier I said that if, if no one asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, it, it may be that we lack these other characteristics which Christ will find in his church. A church that zealously strives, Hebrews 12, 14, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. A church which feasts in a biblical manner. A church which has great reason to rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances is adorning the gospel of God with evidence for its efficacy. Sorry, I, I couldn't resist the alliteration. What I, what I mean is that the church that lives in obedience to God in these ways will show everyone around them that the gospel is effective in our lives. This will be the church as Christ finds her. Let me, let me leave you with the description of the church in Acts 2, 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would fundamentally change the, the character of your people. 
so that when you return, you would find your pure and spotless bride as you have promised. I pray that you would take us from all corporate business-like models of the church, all cult-like models of the church, and bring us to the family model. That we would consider one another brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, that we would love one another as you have loved us, as you command us to. And Lord, I pray that it would just be implanted in our minds that the way we treat those who belong to you is exactly how we are treating you. Lord, I have few opportunities to bless you, but many opportunities to bless your people. And so honor you and give you thanks and worship you. I pray that we would do it. Lord, I pray that this church would be a church who welcomes strangers, who feeds everyone in need, who cares for both the spiritual and physical needs of our brothers and sisters. And should the need arise, that we would visit those and care for those who are being persecuted. And Lord, may our gaze rise from this place where we have few such needs. And may our hearts be stirred as we hear of believers elsewhere. Lord, as we consider each an opportunity to directly give to you through giving to your people. Do this in us, I pray. For your name's sake. Amen.